Studying's boring. I've already done enough already. The test isn't for ages. The teacher told us it wasn't important. What's the point? I'm rubbish anyway. I could go on and on and on with the list of typical student reactions to the prospect of revision. Not only have I heard them from my own children and from other students, but I know for a fact that I churned a few of these out to my parents all those years ago. But while it's easy to dismiss this as a stereotypical teen response, is there something more that we should be doing to help overcome this roadblock and help our children then reach their goals? Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021, or at least what was intended to be their 2021 exams. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. Then, with a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. They could be broad themes, such as motivation or managing mental health, or they could be quite focused, such as how best to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, we're looking at what it takes to be motivated. I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Enser. Mark is Head of Geography and Research Lead at Heathfield Community College in East Sussex. He's a frequent columnist with the Times Educational Supplement, an author and, as well as regularly blogging along with his wife, Zoe Enser, who many of you may remember from a previous episode on generative learning, he is also an avid Twitterer. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. It's not uncommon for our students to procrastinate and delay when it comes to studying. Many experience a real drop in energy and motivation at the thought of having to revise. It's a chore or perhaps even a necessary evil for them. At the moment, it's a particular issue for Year 11 and Year 13 students who should have been sitting their exams. They may feel especially disengaged with low enthusiasm for any future studying. And it's a very similar story for years 10 and 12 who face exams next year and are questioning whether or not they should even bother. Mark, motivation is understandably low for students at the moment, but is it actually important to be motivated in order to study? I think it's critical to be motivated. I really like Peps McCrea's book on motivation, motivated teaching, and he points out there that motivation is the gateway to attention. And we know that attention is the gateway to cognition. We, we think about what we pay attention to. And if we're not motivated to pay attention to something, then we're not going to think about it and then we're not going to learn it. So without motivation, we don't have an education. And so what form does that motivation have to take there? Does it have to be a motivation to learn, a desire to study, or do longer, more far-reaching goals work for motivation? How specific does it need to be? The research seems to suggest that we tend to be better motivated by very short-term goals. Long-term goals are lovely, and I certainly would think we all want to have them. We want our young people to have them, and we want to have them ourselves, to think about what we want in 10 years' time and the future we're dreaming of. But actually, in terms of doing something now, we tend to be quite short-termist. We tend to think what's going to benefit me in the next hour week, month, maybe the end of a year if we're really pushing it. 
much beyond that, it, it stops having the, the same kind of power. So short-term goals certainly seem to help to motivate people more. What's the impact of demotivation? So you can see how the motivation to want to do well, but sometimes we can, and as I say in the moment for our students, I think fairly understandably get that sense that, well, it's a, what, what's the point? Is there an overriding negativity towards demotivation? Possibly. I, I think one thing we have to be quite clear about is that motivation isn't a character trait. It, it's not that we are negatively motivated. We, we lack motivation generally. We might be lacking in motivation to do something that somebody else thinks is desirable or that we on some level think is desirable, but nevertheless find ourselves lacking motivation to do. And I think that's somewhere where people get a bit confused, especially when you go into kind of the business world and then we've been motivational and you know, you've got to be a motivated person and you've got to you know, 10 ways to become more motivated. That, that's not it. We can't just be generically motivated or demotivated. And so I think if we think at the moment uh, and we think of kind of the, the issues we've had over the last year, we can see that maybe pupils or some pupils now lack motivation to learn in the classroom. You know, that's a very specific thing where for various reasons that they, they've lost that sense of purpose with it. That they're not sure what they're doing it for, either because exams have been cancelled or that they don't feel that they're making the progress that they should be because they've taken steps backwards in terms of, some of the skills they've been developing. And so now they lack motivation in that. But they're still motivated to do other things. They're still motivated to make their mates laugh or motivated to go out for the evening or yeah, that's still motivating them. So it's not a kind of a, a general character trait. I love that idea of actually motivation not being a character trait, because I think we do tend to think of it in that way, don't you? That you're, I suppose, this, this sort of generic, holistic motivation to do well at school tends to make you think of that student as being driven. But of course, as you say, actually, there are any number of students who, well, everyone will be motivated to do something else. It just might be excelling at FIFA or horse riding rather than the school themselves. So given that your motivation might be elsewhere, is it possible to divert that to study so to help the students who aren't intrinsically, if not naturally, geared towards wanting to do it, to help them find that purpose? Yeah, I think so. I think you, you can look at what drives motivation and where motivation to do something comes from. And there's kind of these three sources or, or three factors that influence our motivations. The first is that we need to see the value in doing it. I think that's kind of the most obvious one, the one that we're most kind of familiar with, is that if we want to motivate someone, we say, this is good because. And we show them why it's important. And that's where those short-term goals come in. This is how it's going to benefit you next week or next month for the immediate you, not for future you that you don't care about, but for the you that is you now you can see that it's going gonna, it's gonna to give you some kind of a boost or, or benefit. The second driver is expectation. You have to expect to do well. You might think the thing is valuable, but if you don't think you're going to achieve it, then you're not motivated to try. Because why would you put in effort to something that's not going to go anywhere? We're, you know, humans are essentially evolved to be quite lazy creatures, like most life forms. Why would you expend energy that doesn't reap a reward? So you have to have expectation. And then the third one is cost, which is almost kind of the flip side of the expectation. The cost has to be quite low in doing it. So if we want to motivate our students, we have to think, how do we show them the value of doing the thing that we believe is valuable? How do they benefit? So trying to think about it 
from their perspective as a starting point, but not limiting yourself to that, because otherwise we don't make any progress, we don't change. So how can we maybe word it in a way where they're going to see the benefit? How can we create a culture in which this thing becomes valuable? We have to show them that it's achievable and make it achievable and support them to achieve it. And then we have to keep the cost as low as we can. So if we think about traditional exams that you know run for years and years and years and years, schools spend a huge amount of time showing the value of those exams. You know, we really reinforce the idea that this matters. If you don't get your grade fours, you're not going to go to college. You're going to have to reset and you have to get a five if you want to go and do these kinds of courses and the world's going to end. And we really hype the value of these. And we spend a lot of time you know, reinforcing it, reinforcing it, reinforcing it. Schools now spend money bringing in those motivational speakers to tell them about the value of it. You know, and we, we focus on that. We then keep the expectation they're going to do well. We possibly fiddle reports slightly and mock results to make it seem like they're doing better and predicting them perhaps slightly higher grades and they're actually going to achieve. And so they think they're going to do well and we do whatever we can to stop them feeling like they're not. And then we keep the cost as low as possible by doing everything we can as teachers and, and often at home as parents to help them do well. You know, we run revision classes after school and lunch times and intervention sessions. You can have a kid who has barely worked for 10 years, but then everything is put in place to get them over the line and get them the grades that they need regardless to keep the cost low. So they are motivated to continue and don't drop off. So we're quite good at doing that. You're talking about sort of the expenditure of resources. So you mentioned before about keeping energy low. So it's that kind of thing that actually you don't need to put in inordinate amounts of effort and there's that value payoff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, any cost, you know, including things like cost to self-esteem that we want to limit so that you you don't feel like a failure, which then becomes a cost. So it's that that's that flip side of expectation. So if we increase expectation, we tend to lower cost at the same time. I want to pick apart those elements and talk about each of them. Seeing that value, the first bit that you talk about, obviously makes complete sense. Why wouldn't it? If you don't know what it is that you think you might get out of a thing. So I suppose for parents helping their young people to sort of gear around that, it's something realistic, isn't it? And it's not about these far-flung goals of if you don't study now, you'll never become an astronaut or whatever the parent dreams of for the child, but something that's much more about the here and now. You talked about immediate payback. Ideally, we want to get to the point where we value the education itself. Now, if we can do that and make it an intrinsic goal that we want to learn for the simple love and joy of learning, then things are going to get much, much easier in education and in life generally. Now, I think we're a little way off that culturally. If we kind of keep that as an end point, then we want to think, OK, why does this thing that I'm learning now matter? Well, it matters because it's going to help me to understand the next thing. And so just showing pupils those links between, OK, well, this topic is hard, it's difficult, and you're finding it difficult because you don't currently understand this. So let's focus on this. Let's understand this. OK, we've understood this. Now let's look at this next step. Oh, look, now you can understand it more because of this. And so actually breaking topics down, subjects down, units down to these kind of component parts can really help to see the value in a much more immediate sense. It's valuable because it's helping me to make progress towards learning more. So actually, even though, and I'm reminded, of course, of talking to Nimish Ladd last week about Marge, that it's this big picture. So the goal that we talk about in terms of value can be small, but positioning it in terms of this is one element of, of how it fits in here, both in terms of why 
redshift is important in studying physics, as well as why studying physics and getting the grade that you want is important to longer ambitions. It's sort of really critical, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And so you're constantly zooming in and out. And that's how a good curriculum should be structured. It's interesting how often you look at something like motivation, which seems so distinct and separate in terms of education, but it then kind of links through to everything else that we're doing in schools. Because if you get the curriculum right, where there are these links and you're zooming in and out of kind of micro granular levels up to the topic as a whole and back in again, then you help to show that value. If your curriculum is just a series of isolated little bits of information with no connections between them, it's much harder to show that greater value of studying this part. So getting the curriculum right it comes first, as it so often does. And that's the fear, I guess, as well, that if it's just a series of connected or not necessarily even connected facts and figures that actually school then just simply becomes about rote learning in order to churn out in order to get the grade as you talked about before with rote learning then we're getting into obviously pedagogy as well as curriculum which is interesting and we're going to find kind of these more links so you know i don't i don't mind whether people learn through rote or anything else as long as they learn it but i think the problem comes when we don't show people the whole picture if we want them to value what they're learning we need to create that sense of intrigue about something you know we're learning this because it's going to help us to answer this question so for instance we even at GCSE we tend to phrase our topics as kind of big questions that we're trying to answer so we're not simply learning about Nigeria and the changing economic world because it's on the specification we're trying to understand how colonialism influenced Nigeria in the past and is going to influence in the future and we can kind of start that kind of big intriguing question and then every little thing they're learning is a piece of that puzzle. And they want the answer. Humans are naturally curious as well as being naturally lazy. And we want to know things. We want to find out things. And that then gives a value to what we're learning. It's not just about learn this, it's on the test, because that test is too far away to be motivating. It's learn this so you know the answer to that question. And you want to know the answer to that question because you're human. And that also then ties into the expectations element, that, that second value driver, that if I learn this, I will do well. Is it as simple as that? Yes and no. It, it depends on what will do well means, which then comes back to value. What does it mean to do well for that individual? So if we just focus on expectation, then we're going to struggle because what people might view as doing well is, well, making my friend laugh is, is what I want to do. And I expect I can do that. So that's what I'm going to focus on. We want to make sure the expectation is aligned to the thing that we value. But then after that, yes, it is kind of that simple. It's just showing them that it's achievable. And it's something that teachers and parents, I think, actually have a lot of power over, is making sure that the challenge is pitched right. And it's just beyond what they can currently do. We're not making them leap too far and then have this kind of crashing failure time after time because it's always too far out of their reach. They're thinking quite carefully about, well, this is what they know so far, so this is where they can go next. They can now understand this because of what's come before so that they expect to succeed and then they'll be motivated. And those expectations are relative to the individual. I think that can be one of the difficult things, can't it, with the grading system and come back to the exams and thinking about I'm in line for a seven. Now in old money that would be an A which is amazing but of course above a seven you've also got an eight and a nine and so is it motivating because they are striving for something more or demotivating because it's not what they would have hoped if not what they should have expected? It's tricky. Certainly there's kind of a body of research out there on motivation what most of that points to 
is that we're better off using comparisons to our own previous performance to motivate other people and, and to try and motivate ourselves. So actually saying, well, you need to get an A because everybody else is getting them often ends up being demotivating and it's harder to strive for because you don't know how that relates to where you're currently situated. Whereas last time, this is what you were able to do. Well, now look and see what you can do now. Isn't that better? Is more motivating. So rather than trying to pitch kind of a competition as a motivational driver, we want to think about competing with our own past performance. That tends to work better. But isn't that possibly a bit idealised because of the fact that the end result in GCSEs and in A-level certainly is a comparative ranking of an entire cohort? So although individually, and I get completely that the second driver expectation should be realistic to me, but if realistic to me is a five, I may not think that that's motivating in the whole. And so why should I do it even though it's realistic to me? Yeah, absolutely. So why use the grades at all would be my argument that, you know, let's not use that to motivate. Let's use the work to motivate. I really like Burgess' book, The Ethics of Excellence, where he talks about kind of having these portfolios of, of pupils' work so that they can see the difference between where they started and where they ended up. And actually getting them to do something that's maybe a little bit difficult at the beginning of the course that maybe they are going to struggle with a bit, but with lots of reassurance that that's okay because we're going to work on this and you know, no one's doing especially well, it's fine. And look, I'd struggle with this. And then maybe a few months later, coming back to it and trying again and say, well, look, that's the progress that you have made yourself. That's where our motivation is going to come from rather than, oh, this piece of work is graded a three. This bit of work's graded a four. Oh, but my neighbor got a five. And suddenly we have a problem. It, grades don't need to be used in school they're a summative judgment at the end of a course that apparently we need for qualifications and fine. We, okay, I'll accept that they have a function and a use out there in wider society, but we don't need to keep banging on about them in school and at home and everywhere else. They don't help. They don't do anything. They don't mean anything until the end. So let's stop using them as this constant prod, this, this kind of stick all of the time. Mm. So I love that, the stick bit, because I think for many parents, they might see it as the carrot. Imagine if you got an eight. Imagine if you got a nine. Whereas in actual fact, if you in your heart of hearts don't think you can get there, then of course that becomes a pipe dream and impossible. And actually then it's one more reason why the cost is too high. As you said, my, my self-esteem will suffer if I constantly strive for something that I'm never going to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. And the other problem is that we fear failure because it will harm our self-esteem and actually especially in public we fear being seen to try and fail or even sometimes privately trying and failing whereas if we don't try then we don't fail and so given these kinds of things like oh you should get now imagine how amazing it would be to get an eight and you don't think you're going to do it why are you going to try and get that eight because in doing so, you're saying, well, I'm going to do my best. And so when I don't get it, that, that's due to my failing as a human being, not achieving it, rather than, well, I chose not to try. And that's why I didn't get this impossible dream. So yeah, any, any goals that we do give need to be realistic. And that's why I think divorcing them from the grades helps, because nobody knows what that is. An eight isn't a thing. You can't touch it. You can't see it. You can't model it. It's not out there until the exam's been sat. So don't use it as a goal because you can't make it realistic. You can't make it tangible. We heard from Mark Roberts a while back as well about 
this sort of defense mechanism. If I haven't tried, I haven't really failed. And so I think there's a real risk as well, isn't there, that that will come in. Actually, I will start to actively find myself doing other things so that I can be prepared through a sense of bravado to say, well, doesn't really matter. I didn't even put any effort in. And, and so it doesn't, it's not a true reflection of me. Absolutely. And I think this is one thing that's kind of really key if we're thinking about how to motivate people is there's this real myth that people, and especially boys, when people think about the gender gap, are motivated by competition. And that's how you motivate people. You have lots of quizzes and competitions, and but actually only the people who think they're going to do well, who have that expectation of success, are going to try. And that's going to be a very small number of people. But they'll be the most vocal ones. They're the ones going, can we do a quiz? Can we do a kahoot? Can we do a... And you go, oh, of course, yes, that'd be great, because look how motivated you're being by it. And not noticing the other 25 quiet, withdrawn students going, please don't make me do this. Competition is often not motivating unless it's competition with ourselves and we think we can do better. I'm getting the feeling that actually rather than look at this attainment through the expectation, this is what you can reach, is that we should be looking at something much more growth mindset oriented. Is that right? So something about the effort that you'll expend and how much progress you've made and, and all of these kinds of things. Yes, I'm a little wary of growth mindset just because Dwex works been. I could sense in the phrasing of yes that I hadn't sold that to you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's been very hard to replicate Dwex work in the classroom. I think the only problem is that it's back to the idea of we're a motivated person or we're a growth mindset person. We have that mindset and we can change from being a fixed mindset to a growth mindset as a kind of a character trait probably doesn't work. I think on an individual level, on an item by item basis, we can make success seem achievable. And that's what we can focus on. Whether I'd term that growth mindset, I'd probably just be a little wary personally. So what might you call it then, if we're looking at something that's not about the immeasurable attainment number success factor? Learning. <laughs> can we just say that we're... Works for me. We're, we're, we're learning. And that's progress. Because I now know more than I did. I can do more, understand more, be able to do more than, than I used to be able to. And how does that sit with motivation? So I've got my test coming up, prosaically. It could obviously be anything that I'm learning-wise that I'm being motivated for. I understand that it's important and I understand where it fits in. My expectation is, what would that conversation look like if we don't want to talk about you could get a number that was slightly better than the number you had last time? I think the expectation would be that I could show that I had learnt what was on the curriculum because that curriculum has value. And I think that's why we need to talk about our curriculum with our pupils is so that they see the value that that curriculum has, so that it belongs to them, that they understand the journey they're being taken on and the purpose that it has and why it's important. And so the ethos of the school then becomes very, very important. If we want people who are genuinely motivated to learn, that then ethos becomes everything. And that's probably as a society where we're not there. We haven't done that. We've spent so long focusing on get the grades, get the grades, get the grades, rather than on learn, learn, learn. There's a brilliant book by James Hanscom, a school built on ethos. He's the principal of Harris Westminster Sixth Form. And he just talks constantly. And if you ever meet him in real life, he talks constantly about the joy and love of learning. But learning is fun, learning is amazing, learning is brilliant. And he just drives this through his school. It's this sense that we're just learning for the sake, the sheer joy of knowing things. Isn't it amazing to know stuff? And I think that's what we need. And so when you have that test and you're thinking, okay, what's going to motivate me to study? It's because 
I value this subject. I believe in geography. I believe in science. I believe in mathematics. I believe that these things have an intrinsic worth that I can have access to. And that then motivates us. And so the test is then incidental, is that because if what I'm learning for is the joy of learning and because I, I understand and I have a desire to excel or to do as best I can, then actually that moment in time event of test or exam sort of falls away is what you're suggesting. Yeah, certainly the ones in kind of school, the, the kind of the more formative ones, the one or even kind of summative in school assessments, that the purpose shifts, they stop being about creating some data that allows me to report to your parents what grade you are. And instead, they become a learning opportunity. Well, the reason we're doing the test is so that I, as a teacher, know what you know, and I can then plan differently for the future. I can look at it and go, oh, most of the class didn't really understand this, so I'm going to plan that in for the next part of the curriculum. Or that pupil didn't understand this, so I'm going to help that pupil to understand this. And that then becomes the purpose of the assessments, is they become a learning opportunity for the teacher and for the pupil about where they're at. They become kind of metacognitive for the pupil. They can then start to think about their own learning and, and their own gaps in learning. And for the teacher, they, they become a kind of formative assessment. And then the summative assessment at the end, well, well, that then becomes the kind of the distillation of what you have learned so you can show other people what you have learned about the things that you value. So you can go, I love my education, I valued it, and at the end of it, this is what I was able to do. And go out into the world with that symbol of that education. And so then in terms of the three drivers, does it become incremental? that my first step builds to my second step, which actually ignoring the cost for an element, then sort of drives more sort of expectation and value. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say curriculum becomes critical when thinking about motivation in this way. People's need to see the journey that they're going on and understand the purpose of doing it. So I'm learning this bit now so I can learn this bit later, so I can learn this bit here, with the end goal of being able to know this about the world. And presumably the more invested or bought in a student is to those first two elements, the understanding the value and having a realistic expectation of themselves, the lower that cost burden is going to be because actually they're in a, is it because they're in a groove or because they have a much better understanding of what it means to them? Yeah, I think so. And so for a start, you lose some of that cost from the fear of failure. So that cost to your self-esteem of trying and failing because the expectation is being supported in order for you to achieve those goals. But you also then, when you think about the ethos around learning, you reduce the cost through what you do. So it becomes easier to learn because you're focused on the curriculum or because the school puts in place extra opportunities to learn through inspiring visitors and trips and all the kind of extracurricular, supercurricular work that you do it just makes it easier you're not having to put as much effort to seek out those learning opportunities because the school and hopefully your new value in wanting to learn become aligned and so everything is done to help you to learn in a kind of wide sense of the idea of learning or a broad range of subjects and interests and ideas are being explored and everything's being done in that institution to help you along that path so while I buy into that wholeheartedly. I sense a butt coming up. There is there's definitely a butt coming up. <laughs> but I wonder if it doesn't feel, as a parent of two children who have been very different in their approaches to learning, whether it doesn't feel a bit either naive or perhaps overly optimistic 
that our students or our children as parents would fall into this sort of harmonious groove of wanting to learn, learning, understanding why they're learning, wanting to learn more and so on. Yes, it is idealistic, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if we start with this kind of ideal of what it is we want to achieve, and then we work towards that, it doesn't mean we take the eye off other things. So for instance, if we also want to lower the cost, then put in revision sessions, put in some intervention sessions, fine. That'll also help to lower the cost and make it much easier. If you want them to value something, if you need to carry on using external things to help them to value it, continue to use some external drives to help them value it. Continue to offer them rewards and prizes and things. Just be aware that that has its downside. You know, it's not cost free when we start to offer those things. Those kind of perverse incentives start to kick in and things and and it starts to change how we see the activity and can become quite demotivating if we start offering rewards. So we have to be a little cautious, but you know, we, we, we can keep those things in place if we feel that we need to, to keep pupils on that track because yeah, we're dealing with, with humans and, and humans have a range of things that they start valuing and, and want to do, but it doesn't make it impossible. We can do it. And I think one thing that we need to do is we need to think about where people are currently at. What is it that they actually value at the moment? What is it that they want? Um, and how do we harness those things? in order to, 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 to kind of keep driving them on. And that's why I keep coming back to this idea of curiosity. It is really, really rare to meet someone who isn't curious. And so if we use that as our kind of our way in, that can take us a long, long way towards this kind of ideal utopian vision where, where everyone has this love of learning and turns up to my classes going, sir, please teach me. I love my geography. <laughs> a chorus of 30 people begging for a test because they're all motivated to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we can get there. And I know we can because I see it happening. You know, I, I do see my classroom since I've started changing my view of motivation, changing my approach. The vast majority of pupils do come along with me. There's the occasional one who needs a bit more of the kind of external, no, so you have to work or you're going to get detention. But the vast majority buy into this vision and, and want to learn and do say thank you at the end of a lesson and do say sir what are we learning when we come in and look genuinely excited when i tell them it's oxbow lakes because there's that kind of intriguing question it is doable and i look at james hanscom school and, and, and kind of what he's doing that you see it you see this kind of desire to learn um being realized so although it's idealistic it's achievable but who doesn't love an Oxbow Lake, frankly? Broadly, I think the only... Actually, I'm not going to... I was about to confess, and I'm going to now because I can feel myself doing it, to that being, I think, the most memorable of all of my geography lessons. <laughs> Weird, isn't it? It's absolutely strange. So what I love about that then is that there's a... I got a sense of a, a, this push and pull that you could have. You've got the the curiosity that you could look to spark to drive that, the wanting to do it, to be motivated to study, to do more but also at the same time accepting that students and young people aren't necessarily going to fall over themselves to do this, that actually there are practical things that we could be looking to do to help and assist. And some of that might be the sort of the kickstart reward of if you do this and we can go to the cinema or you can not have to tidy your bedroom next week, which, as you say, are moments in time sort of accelerants more than they are sustainable. And a balance of the two of those actually is an individual thing, isn't it, And that parents can look at? It really is. I think one thing we can really look at is something that I've mentioned a couple of times already, but perhaps for career, he, he talks about this idea of nudging norms as one of his kind of drivers of motivation, which is trying to make 
the thing that you want them to do normal, to really emphasize that, well, everyone else is doing it, rather than you're all being terrible, none of you are revising, none of you are studying, not, because that just normalizes not doing those things, rather than I was really impressed. You know, I checked and almost everyone had done their revision homework, you know, and did really well and cleaned up a lot of effort. And then quietly saying to one pupil, I noticed you didn't. Is everything okay? Because everyone else did it. Did you not for a reason? And just making it normal to do those things. And I think that's where we sometimes run into those difficulties is we kind of normalise not doing the thing that we want them to do. We're saying it's weird to study to the point where I'm going to have to bribe you to do it because nobody's going to want to do this otherwise unless I bribe you. And that's where we, some of these things start to fall down. We get a bit of a problem as well. Once we start introducing those kind of external rewards to nudge people along, is you start doing a little calculation in your head you otherwise wouldn't do it, whether this thing is really worth it. So, you know, this evening, I was quite happy to come here and and talk to you because I love this. I love talking about motivation, education, and and passion for learning. And I'd happily give up my time. If you had said, would you come and do this and I'll give you 20 quid? I'd probably have gone no, because I think, is it worth an hour of my evening for for 20? I'm not going to... Something I would have done for nothing suddenly becomes this calculation where you go, not worth it. The same thing happened with blood donations. They offered money for blood donations. The number of donations fell because suddenly people weren't doing it for altruistic reasons. They were calculating the value of their blood and realised it wasn't worth it. So I think we need to be careful. We're better off emphasising the positives rather than accepting the negatives and therefore bribing people to to do them. Hmm. I'm reminded of a case study I think I read about hotels and trying to encourage hotel guests to not put all of the towels in the bath at the end of their visit so that you could have an impact, a much better positive impact on the environment by not using the detergents and so on. It's the kind of thing that you might think, well, of course, I want to save the planet. And so I won't put the hand towel that I haven't used in the basin or whatever else that the system might be. But actually, people didn't. No one actually took this up until the change the hotel made was to say, this last month, 80% of people didn't wash everything thanks to all your efforts. And actually then they had this exponential boom because all of a sudden, as you exactly described, that behaviour was normalised. It was the right thing to do. And I was felt encouraged to do it because otherwise I might actually stand out and be the only person burning a hole in the ozone there. Absolutely. It's really, really powerful. You see it in the COVID briefings. Constantly, the British public are doing this. Well done to all those people. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's wearing their mask. Everybody's getting vaccinated. Excellent. Well done. Keep doing it because that's works. That's what becomes motivating. You're right. We don't want to stand out from the crowd. So let's use that to our advantage. And so when it comes to studying at home, parents looking for normalising the good behaviour, this also has to be, I'm assuming, credible, that it can't be either completely trivial. Well done. I see that you have sharpened the three pencils. That's a start but actually looking at ways of encouraging and egging them on. Yeah, and I think we can do that through those drivers. So as parents, we can value their work. We can take an interest. We can ask them to talk to us about it. I know it's not always easy with teenagers up in there, but you can do it. You can say, you know, what were you revising yesterday or or this evening? What did you find out? Tell me, oh, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. Oh, does that link to what you were doing and you were talking to me about last week? But that only works if we have those conversations. But we can show that we value it and we can also help them to see the success that they're having. We can say, oh, that's really impressive what you told me. I didn't know that. That's interesting. You know, show that, you know, they are experiencing success. So they, they get that taste of success. And then we can help to reduce the cost. We can make it easy for them 
to revise. We can give people a quiet space to do it. We can bring them a cup of tea and a biscuit halfway through. We can just make it a pleasant thing to be doing rather than something that's noisy and stressful and complicated. So I think those drivers work for parents just as well as they do for teachers. And similarly, I think that feedback, the praise and adulation as and when it's relevant, also becomes part of the value of the session itself, doesn't it? Because we know that, by and large, young people actually do seek that validation from their parents that what they're doing is successful. And we want to feel successful. So if you can see that, then actually my barriers to not wanting to revise in future are broken down slightly because actually not only will I achieve but I will also get recognised for it and that makes me feel good. Yeah, absolutely. And so is there any sort of starting points for parents who might be listening to this podcast, looking over the table at their child thinking, never in a million years? (laughs) (laughs) Um, are Are there any sort of baby steps that the parents might take to venture into this and I suppose start that journey, really? I would suggest making a note of those kind of three mechanics for motivation the value the expectation and the cost and just keeping those three things in mind and keeping the scale kind of really really small so starting with one thing that they're supposed to be revising but clearly not and asking them why do you think you're studying this what do you think the purpose is what's it for how will it help how will it help you understand something and just starting to probe and ask those questions you know why are we learning this and then helping them to be successful And so really emphasising that expectation of success. I think one of the worst things that parents can can do, and it's so common, is that I was never good at that. I was never good at maths. I was never good at geography. Oh, I hated it. Oh, I hated geography at school. All it was was Oxbow Lakes. Because we're then kind of set on this expectation for failure. You're going to be like me. I didn't like it. You're going to be like me. I was no good at it. And just even if we feel it ourselves, just don't say it. You don't have to say everything that passes through our heads and go, you know what? It's fine. No, I'm not going to tell my kid I hated maths because it really is going to be harmful in terms of the expectations. So keeping that in mind. And as I say, just, just reduce the cost. Make it easy for them to revise. Don't say they've got to sit there for two hours and berate them if they move. Start small. Start easy. You know, I'll go and get on with it. I'll bring you a cup of tea up in five minutes. It's easy, you're out of the way, you haven't got to focus on everyone watching you doing it and that feeling of pressure. Bring your cup of tea in five minutes and that way they also know they better get on with it and not be playing FIFA because someone's going to come with a cup of tea in five minutes. But it doesn't feel as intrusive. So just keeping those three things in mind, I, I think, are important. And also, I suggest not expecting this to be a revolution for a child who might lack motivation currently or who isn't necessarily directing that motivation towards studying is that this isn't going to be an overnight transformation because they've listened to the podcast and implemented the three drivers. But what you would hope to see is that little by little, that actually this can have a transformative effect. Absolutely. If we think about you know, a pupil in year 10, that they might have had 10 years of education all being about just get the grade, just get the grade, just get the grade, just get the grade all the way through. And you're right, we're not going to suddenly change this culture overnight and change their motivation overnight into this glorious thing. But it'll be little instrumental changes that maybe just let them see their learning in a different way that will become more motivating. It'll be small and gradual, but hopefully have this gradually improving effect. It's kind of incremental improvement where bit by bit, they become a bit more confident. They become a bit more interested in their subjects and then become more motivated to try. So thinking ahead to the summer and in particular for year 10 and year 12 as they're looking ahead but actually probably not looking ahead but as they will be going into their exam years what should parents be thinking about as it comes towards a holiday should they be 
trying to encourage them to do something? Should we be letting our children have the summer off? It's been a rough year for everyone. Let's just try again in September. What, what advice would you offer? Learning isn't something that only happens in school. And it isn't this kind of linear event where we kind of, you know, we learn along this kind of nice, simple path. If I had a, a kind of a year 10 kid at home, or a year 12 kid at home, I'd probably be encouraging them to read, read a book, read a magazine article, read a newspaper article online, talk about it, discuss it, because these things are going to have a benefit in terms of their grades at the end as well, because it's going to increase their wider understanding of the world and the subjects that they're studying. Probably far more than going, you know what, here's a revision guide, work your way through it, because they won't have the teacher support and the kind of the curriculum structure and everything else that goes alongside. So I think actually in terms of their learning, what, what they could do with it is reading, maybe going to a museum, watching something that they wouldn't usually watch on TV, a bit of a documentary, having some conversations, and probably getting some fresh air and, and relaxing and resting a bit will do them more good than slogging through yet another provision guide. And also I think if that comes as part of a conversation, look, this summer, let's not worry about it too much, but why not pique your interest with these other ideas around the side actually you're setting the stall aren't you for september when actually there might be a, a harder slog for some than for others and actually they can start to get a sense of that value that they might be getting out of the revision which in turn will help their motivation as they enter the new academic year yeah absolutely rest relax recuperate so many kids have a stressful lockdown, especially the last lockdown, with this kind of constant pressure to be at remote lessons five hours a day on Zoom. It's exhausting. It's draining. And so actually having some downtime, getting out in the real world, kicking a ball around, going for a walk in the woods, meeting your mates and having a chat, that stuff matters. And we learn from it. If nothing else, we learn to be human by doing these things. And that stuff counts. And so that's what they should be doing. And not thinking that somehow their education has been wasted because they didn't do an exam. The exam is not their education. And I think one of the saddest things that we're sometimes hearing now is kids saying, well, what was that all for? That we didn't have the exam. Well, that was 11 years wasted. You know, what was the point? And they just need to remember that isn't the point. The point was never the exam. It's the journey that they've been on. Mark, thank you so much for your time and your insights. It's always great to hear from teachers about what they see and experience in the classroom and how that can translate to us at home. Motivation is always going to be a thorny issue for our teens. When they weigh up their here and now against spending time studying, and we can relate to how doing something that we don't want to doesn't stack up against something that we feel we have to do. But listening to Mark, it's clear that this isn't as simple as balancing desires or payback. Drawing on Peps McCree's book, Motivating Teaching, Mark described the three conditions for finding motivation. Number one was understanding the value of what it is that we're studying. Two, having a realistic expectation about what we can achieve. And three, reducing the cost or the impact of the study. When we usually think about encouraging and motivating our teens, we tend to default to finding a future goal that they want to work towards. You'll never be a lawyer if you don't pass your exams. But for the majority of us who've tried this, we know that it seldom works. It's just too nebulous and too far away to be meaningful. And that's what I found fascinating in Mark's description of the full picture. The value of a goal can come in a number of forms, and typically we're looking for something with an immediate payback. 
Now, this doesn't mean bribe or reward. They can work, as we've heard before, as a kickstart, but they aren't sustainable in the long run. Besides, what we really want is for the learning to be the reward. That's a difficult one to sell, especially as we're geared to seeing grades as the measuring stick of education. The realistic expectation is an idea I'm really intrigued by. It's interesting to think how well we estimate we can do will drive our motivation, when actually so often it can be our motivation and drive that can determine our success. But it makes a lot of sense, of course. If we're about to embark on an endeavour, and we don't think we'll succeed, then we're going to be altogether less enthusiastic about it. And that's what's happening, of course, with our students, especially when they consider their success as being measured against their peers. As Mark says, the ideal here would be to benchmark our teen's success in the studying and not against the eventual grade. Maybe we should be looking at this as being progress, perhaps. And finally, there's just this simple matter of cost. I think this is where we, actually, as parents, tend to come into our own. More often than not, the cost of studying is too great for our teens. It comes at the expense of free time, video games, or even staring blankly into space. So what we can do is to try to reduce the friction and cost. We can help set the right space. We can help them to plan ahead and help them manage self-esteem. I was particularly interested when Mark was talking about ethos. Now, this may have been with reference to classrooms and teaching, but it's easy to see how it might apply to our own little world at home. And I think key to this is role modelling. And role modelling, of course, is something that we've heard of before. I mean, way back in season one, Dr Andy Cope talked about the fact that our children might not do as we say, but they will certainly do as we do. And that's what we're looking at here, I think. Not necessarily us studying, picking up a new GCSE, or even taking work home with us and doing it at the same time, but by understanding tasks that we might have been putting off previously, or by talking positively about setting our own self-benchmark expectations, and this can all help to nudge the norms, as Mark put it. I don't think that any parent listening will expect this to be the silver bullet to their teen's motivational issues. It's going to take a bit of time. But working incrementally, looking for and celebrating the little non-attainment related successes by reviewing and reducing the cost, we can help our young people to find the motivation and really help them to reach their own potential. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and that it's given you plenty of food for thought. If you did, I wonder if you'd take a moment just to leave a five-star rating and perhaps a review too. It really does help us to reach other parents and spread the word on how they can support their own young people. Of course, sharing the link to this and other episodes with your friends on social media is always very much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.